So welcome. I'm Mary Wood for the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education. And as always, I'm very happy to be with you, with you here for the last time for a couple of years in the green room of the Veterans Building here in San Francisco. Our points of view programs are going to be moving, and I'll explain a little bit about that in just a minute, but first I want to reiterate the welcome here this evening. It's Wednesday, April 10th, and it's 2013. And these points of view programs produced by the Center for Dance Education are going to go forward with a great deal of strength, but the Veterans Building will be closed for a couple of years for seismic upgrade. And, and you know how these things go, and it's only been 20-some years, and they've finally gotten around to this building. So we have a relocation. We are going to the Norse Theater, which is just down the street, a block or so. It's on Hayes. The address is 275 Hayes between Van Ness and Franklin. And it's a little historic gem of a place. We're going to love it. And in a couple of years, who knows, we may be back, we hope, to the newly seismically retrofitted and remodeled Veterans Building. Um, meanwhile, I do want to also let you know, as, of course, we continue to tell you, these programs are recorded for podcast on the San Francisco Ballet website, sfballet.org. Many of you have looked for the podcasts and have let us know that you uh, aren't finding them. We're delighted to know you're looking for them. However, um, there have been the ubiquitous technical difficulties, and they will be put on the website be by the end of the season or perhaps the 1st of June. So the good news is, after the end of the season, you can spend the summer listening to all of the programs and um, reviewing the season, savoring your memories of the season by listening to all the podcasts then. Let's see, one more announcement. Um, next week, we will not be in the green room. We'll still be in the, in the Veterans Building, but we'll be downstairs in the Herbst Theater. And my guest next week will be Katita Waldo, ballet master, and um, we're hoping for a couple of dancers to join us, and we'll be talking about Program 7, so I look forward to seeing you then. With that, I would like to move on to talking about Program 6 which is one of the loveliest of the repertory programs that we've had all season. Uh, we're going to start by looking at the first piece to be seen, Raimonda, Act Three. Our old friend, Marius Petipa. As titled, Raimonda, Act Three, is extrapolated from one of Petipa's three-act extravaganzas, you might recall he created at least 47 of them that we know of, and uh, some of them as long as five acts. And this was his last great extravaganza, or as we call them, spectacle ballets, created in 1898. Those of you who have listened to me over the years should be able to recite the elements of a pedipas spectacle. This has them all. It's a typically convoluted and improbable story. 
And we don't often see the whole full-length ballet, although it does exist. As always, there's a wedding celebration, usually in the third act, so from this we get this brilliant suite of dances that are presented here. I should add that the score to this wonderful pet ballet is by Alexander Gladsenoff. It was his first ballet, and exciting because he was very nervous to follow in Tchaikovsky's footsteps and sat with Petipa, who gave it probably more attention because he was uh, mentoring Gladsenoff at the same time that they were creating the libretto for Raimonda. <clears throat> One element that is particularly fascinating in Ramonda is that, is that of the dances that we call character dance. This is defined as folk or national dance that has been stylized very specifically to be made theatrical and to be positioned on the stage in the context of a theatrical dance presentation. <clears throat> Having a suite of character dances as a complement to the classical variations was a familiar convention that really dates to the earliest years of ballet history. The Petipa spectacle would have parallel tracks for soloists and principals, and some of the dancers of the Mariinsky Ballet would have specialized in character dance. As you see, one of the outstanding first things to observe is that the women are not wearing point shoes. They're wearing heeled boots. The men also would be wearing heeled boots. The women would not be asked to do classical technique. They would have been trained in classical technique. And then the elements of the folk dance would be layered on. All of the Petipa spectacles and many, all of the dance, full-length ballets of the period, as I've mentioned, would have included character dance, and I would just call attention to um, some examples that you would be familiar with. Uh, the Mazurka and Chardash from Coppelia, the Scottish Reel from La Sylphide. If you think about it, there's a grand Polonaise that opens the third act of Sleeping Beauty. And then, of course, the third act of Swan Lake features Spanish and Hungarian and Polish and Neapolitan dances. Choreographers um, Arthur San Leon, who created Capella, and Marius Petipa studied the national dances of many European and Russian locales and then created them in the stylized form and their companies specialized in this offshoot of the classical ballet. So this particular version of Raimonda, Act Three, was produced by Rudolf Nureyev in the 1960s for the Royal Ballet of England. And, or I should say, he created the, he recreated the ballet Raimonda in the 1960s, and then he put together this third act version pulling in dances from the other acts. So it's the third act plus, because he wanted, there are beautiful dances throughout the ballet and variations. He wanted to, the audience to have the benefit of as much dance as they possibly could. As you see, the costuming is the traditional 
It's opulent. It's elegant. The original Raimonda story is set in Hungary, sometime vaguely in the Middle Ages. And here you see just movements from the ballet. You will also see character dance or national dance motifs in the classical variations. For instance, here, the ballerina is using an arm gesture that is more of a folk dance motif. And elegance, elegance, elegance. It bears mentioning that these classical variations that you'll see, aside from the character, the classical variations are among the hardest in the classical repertoire. And it's a matter of some pride that our company has two and perhaps three casts who are wrapping their feet around those classical variations. Of special note is the fact that there is a classical variation for four men, a pot cot. And Petipa was unfamiliar with and uncomfortable with a lot of variation work for men. He had to borrow from the classwork of his colleagues. He was brilliant at what he created for, William, for women. And it is said that he went and sat in on the classes of Christian Johansson, who was the great men's teacher of the era. And then basically the variation is classroom steps. And then he put it together not for one male dancer, but for four male dancers. And the challenge is not only to do the hard steps, but to do four of them at once in unison. And every company who's ever done this piece, um, I think there's a collective groan when the casting goes up and the men see that they have to take on that pot of cot. But to do it well is a real accomplishment. Actually, closing the program is a reprise of one of last year's uh, premieres, Symphonic Dances, which was created for the company by Edward Liang to the Symphonic Dances of Sergei Rachmaninoff. You'll recall, I hope that Edward Liang could be considered a local boy, having grown up in Marin County and studied at the Marin Ballet then had his career in Europe and New York. In the tradition of neoclassicism, the choreography for this ballet is driven by the music, with the inevitable and undeniable thematic undercurrent. This is Rachmaninoff's last composition. The dances allowed him to, the dances as in the name of the piece, allowed him to indulge in a nostalgia for the Russia he had known. You might recall that he was an expatriate living in Europe. Using Russian themes, much as he had done in his third symphony, those of you who are musicologists, um, as well as to effectively sum up his lifelong fascination with ecclesiastical chants from the Russian Orthodox canon. He quotes in the first dance the opening theme of his first symphony, which is itself derived from motives characteristic of Russian church music. And in the finale, he quotes both from a dies irae, which is part of a classical um, requiem mass, and from a chant, Blessed Be the Lord, from his work, An All Night Vigil. 
So you'll hear these, if you're listening to the music, overtones of church music and the great masses. The work could be described as dark, although the coloring is vivid and gold. But the choreographer calls it intensely spiritual rather than dark. It's a big work. It's a sweeping work. And it's a beautiful work. So that brings us to our wonderful conversation I've been looking forward to with a great deal of pleasure with San Francisco Ballet principal character dancer and choreographer Val Canaparoli. I'm going to be in conversation with him to accomplish his introduction. So, Val, come on down. In the event that I suddenly lost my mind, I do have notes, but I'm, it's, I can't resist a quote from Auntie Mame. Mame says to Vera, my old, old, old <laughs> friend. And I think Val and I Wait, were just... Wait, this is a wig. <laughs> Val and I were just rem- reminiscing about the fact that we've known each other a pretty long time. Uh, probably 44 years at least. And we're only both 30, so we figure that one out. I love that joke anyway. <laughs> right. Um, so part of this introduction is that Val has been associated with San Francisco Ballet for... 43 years, which is crazy. All the way through, straight through. <laughs> no breaks. <laughs> And you came to the company, just sort of this quick overview, your background and training is? Is uh, music and theater. I didn't start dance until I was 20, this old story I've been telling a million years. But uh, I came here to the school and auditioned for it and lied and said I was 16 or 17, and they believed me and gave me a huge scholarship. So it was like one of those things. And within a year, maybe a year and a half, I was in the company, which is Crazy, because uh, I hadn't studied dance before, but I was determined. So, like I always say, if I, I think naivety was my was the best part of this. Because if I really known how bad I was, I probably would have quitted. But I thought I was the most amazing dancer, and I'm sure if I'd known, I would have ran out of there screaming. But I guess I convinced everyone else too. Maybe I don't know. Well, they saw something. <laughs> um, one of the things that is a theme that goes through your career is the training in theater. Right, right. So many of your works um, are very dramatic and theatrical. And um, a lot of the roles that you dance are dramatic. I want to, however, go back to a few of the um, years of classical dancing. You had the great good fortune to know and perform for 
Lou Christensen. Yes. Um, actually, I was I was here before even Michael Smeon came. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, I think we both. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was amazing. I remember, uh, well, in, in Harold Christensen was the director of the school, so I'm really a product of the Christensen. So it's mm-hmm. um, pretty amazing still being here and keeping a little bit of that heritage going on because it's there's very few of us that mm-hmm. are still here. Well, there's not... There's a good portion of us that are still around from that era, and it's it's wonderful to be here and pass a lot of that on. The worth ethic alone mm-hmm. is yeah. you know something to pass along because then it wasn't union. We didn't have breaks. We didn't do that. <laughs> but I mean, you know, it's a lot of things, and then you just you develop this way of working as a more of a community. The company was you know like a. A family. I mean, it's it's now it's big and huge, and it's 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 great. But uh, it's great to pass that along. Like yeah. I do say, the worth ethic alone. I mean, yeah. what he what he made us do was amazing, and and just the drive. You're talking about Lou. Lou Christensen. Yeah. Yes. And I wonder if uh, when you are creating dances to this day, is there ever Lou's voice in your ear? Oh, it totally. I did, I've done two Nutcrackers so far. Uh, one for. Uh, Cincinnati Ballet and one for Louisville Ballet, and I really channel Lou Christensen. I mean, I thought his Nutcracker is one of the best in the world, and just his storytelling uh, abilities. And his their background was vaudeville. Their background wasn't totally ballet and dance, yeah. just like mine. It was yeah. a lot of different things and a lot of influences. And so, you know, I, I feel part of that very much mm-hmm. so. And um, we're jumping around a bit to go to Ballet West and Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. But after you began choreographing, um, a gig in Salt Lake led to your being resident choreographer there. Yeah, and while yeah. Willem was still living. Right, right. I, I, Willem Christensen would come in rehearsals a lot, and I yeah. love that. Um, yeah, I, I still work, uh, choreograph a lot for Ballet West, so there's still that connection uh, Ballet West, the Christensen's, uh, San Francisco Ballet, the Christensen's, and myself. And I really, I'm, I'm really proud of that, that I, I, I'm still working for both companies. So you did start to choreograph <clears throat> um, really early on. And I think the bio says your first work for San Francisco Ballet was 1982 or 3. It might be 83, Love's, I'm Love's not sure. Love Lies Bleeding. Right. I've always loved the titles for your ballets. <laughs> what is Love Lies Bleeding? Does anybody know? Is that what? She knows. It's a flower. Yeah. But it, I think, <laughs> it, I might be wrong, but it's also is a form of tumbleweed. I don't know. It might, I don't know if that's the... Uh, it's been so long ago when I was <laughs> studying plants, when I was trying to choreograph. <laughs> but that's... Yeah, yeah. yeah. But... Um, the the urge, the call mm-hmm. to create dances must have been pretty strong, and you started. It, it was right, right away. away. It was the light bulb went on when I was like uh, everyone like all the other dancers was sort of like make fun of me because uh, if I wasn't in rehearsal, I'd stick around. I'd be looking and peeking in the doorway, watching all these choreographers. That uh, at the time we always had many different choreographers and a lot of different styles, and I'd just sit there in awe, even if I wasn't cast. I just sit and watch and watch and watch. I'm going, why am I doing this? Why do I love this? And the light bulb went on. Maybe this is what you're here for. You've studied music, theater, speech education, uh, English lit, every, so many different things, and uh, directing and acting and the whole 
everything. And I went, wow, maybe this is what I'm here for. Why I chose dance. I mean, I didn't know why. I just loved it. I didn't know what it was, obviously, but I just, I just knew right away that that's what I wanted to do. And I, I dabbled in it while I was still dancing um, early on. And, you know, I'd take dancers in the company and just, would you try this move and, and such? And I have a lot of dancers that would just say, okay, let's, let's work on things. Or then I'd go, after rehearsal, I'd go to some of the schools, Marin Ballet or Peninsula Ballet, all the schools in the area, and work with the advanced students of those schools at night. So I was... You know, I was, I was driven. This is what I was going to do. No one, no one was going to stop me at that time. And you're the recipient of, I think it's 10, 8 yeah. or 10, uh, National Endowment for the Arts Which, grants. Which amazing, yeah. So that was amazing right there. I, I did get a lot, of, a lot of assistance. And I just think it's remarkable that... Um, you now have a career of going all over. <laughs> the, I'm sorry. I have a career. <laughs> comma. I, I'm comma. the same way. <laughs> I still look at the dancers today and I go, did I really do that? I, st- I, I can't imagine that I w- even did a double tour. I did these turns and stuff. But uh, it's true. You go, how did I have a career? I couldn't imagine. But either I was smart or everyone else was stupid. I don't know. But <laughs> Where I was going with this. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, it's falling out the back of my Sorry. head. <laughs> um, choreographing was where I was going with it. <laughs> It'll come back. Okay. Um, moving on to the, the nature of the pieces you've done. Oh, I know. I want to back up to um, performing mm-hmm. as a character dancer, which is a sort of a s- parallel career. Right. And, and you have done some absolutely wonderful, memorable what was roles interesting, what I was hired to do was a lot of the character roles when I was, <laughs> when I said I was 18 or 19, I was 22, I think. But uh, it came full circle. Then I got an, enough under my belt where I could do a lot of the classical roles and, and, and such, but I didn't enjoy those. I mean, I always, it was my ego went, oh my gosh, I did melancholic. Oh my gosh, I did this or that. These are great roles. But my, i rather do the character roles. It's come full circle well, right now I'm doing the same roles that I did when they first hired me. So it's interesting in that way. And maybe that's why my career's been prolonged a bit. I was trying to prime you with, um, let's just list some of the roles you've done. I'm Drosselmeyer. Right. Um, you know, a lot of my favorite ones were the Lou Christensen roles, like the, the lead in Jinx, uh, the drunk, uh, the rich couple in... In uh, Filling Station, uh, of course, uh, Drosselmeyer. I mean, I love those roles in particular. And, you know, the other ones, the Madge, the Witch, or Witty, Widow Simone and La Fima Garde and all and such. But the, the ones I loved were the yeah. Luke Christensen roles. Mm-hmm. Except for the purple unitard I had to wear in Jinx. That was a bit, it wasn't great. <laughs> purple unitard with the pink <laughs> with those thing collar. I don't know. That was a bit much, but one of your great roles was uh, Father Capulet. Love doing Lord Capulet. Yeah, definitely. And um, so the the great um, Shakespearean parts. Mm-hmm. Have you enjoyed doing those or the comedy roles more? Oh, I, I like them all. I like I like being mean. You know, it's not my nature. So I like being on stage the villain a lot. You know, like. I could do the comedy King Mice thing. I'm, I'm a practical joker, so that's, that's second nature to me, so the comic roles. But I like the villains a lot, an awful lot. 
I do remember, uh, some of you may remember seeing Val as King Miles <laughs> in The Nutcracker. And I think there was some bits that you created that... Oh, yeah. Are in- <laughs> I kept adding year by year until, you know, and I would keep going until people... The, Lou Christensen would tell me, stop, no more, it's getting your, it's too much. <laughs> but then he kept, kept left, lead, letting me do these, uh, even going even further. So I think it was all tongue-in-cheek uh, telling me to stop. But I think he enjoyed it. He loved a good laugh himself. So creating ballets. The, you've done this amazing range of um, more dance work and more dramatic portrayals and everything sort of in between. I'm trying to remember a piece that was just purely neoclassical, and I can't think of one. Uh, It might have been out of town. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. I get a lot of work because uh, artistic directors come to me. They know I work classically and I work on point because the trend now, I don't know if you noticed, a lot of, uh, maybe not so much in this company, but the trend is to not have the women on point. And it's, it gets, with the younger choreographers, new choreographers, either in socks or barefoot or uh, flat shoes, because um, they, want, they want to be more on the ground and more physical. Um, and what happens is, then these directors go, but we have to do Swan Lakes. We have to do the Sleeping Beauties. The, the, the ladies are getting out of shape. So they know that I will, of course, I will choreograph on point. So a lot of the work I get is because I will still, I could be you know, adventurous as I want, but I will still have the women on point. And that's one reason why I get a lot of work because of that. But yeah, it's, yeah. But a lot of uh, more of the abstract works are works that I've done out of, out of the city or state or country. And you enjoy uh, props. You enjoy... Which is weird. I hate dancing with props. I'm the worst. I'm, I'm the one that will drop it. Or, they're, you know, don't make me clap my hand because I'll miss or something. It's like, it's so funny because I hate props as a dancer. And, of course, I make the dancers use props. But that's... Oh, well. Some sort of wish... I don't know. Thing. I don't know. Um, and you like... So I'm thinking particularly of your ballet, I think it was called Slow? Yes. That with the, um, the, the set. The, the eclipse, the slow eclipse throughout. Yeah, right. and then there's and then, only uh, two exits, and that's upstage. You couldn't get out. They were boxed right, in. That's, yeah. it. that's what I'm trying to say. The box mm-hmm. that was, there weren't wings. No, the sides no, you were could not get out. Locked. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, and that's, you know, I, I, when I choreograph, I use a lot of different uh, idioms. Uh, and that I was really inspired. It was the first time I really worked trying to figure out how to, to get that, that feeling of, of flow like in ice skating. So I really used that as, as my vision point of view. So I really explored a lot of gliding on, on, the, on the floor. And I really worked out a lot of great ideas that I still mm-hmm. use to this very day. Yeah, I've seen that sneak into a couple of pieces, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think most people remember Lambarena. Yes. Which, mm. how many companies do Lambarena? It's, it's been, oh God, by 2015, it'll be its 20th anniversary that was created here on San Francisco Ballet. It's, oh gosh, at least 25 companies do it uh, all over the world, and almost every year it's being performed mm-hmm. somewhere. Mm-hmm. It, right now, it's going to be done in Dallas uh, mm-hmm. in, in May. Mm-hmm. 
and the story of your creating Lombarina is the um, is not having a musical inspiration until the day of right. the first no, rehearsal. You, what, what's funny Love is stories like I, that. I'm inspired by the dancers, and in this case, uh, Helgi asked me to create a ballet. And I don't know if, of course, most of you remember Evelyn Cisneros, gorgeous dancer. And someone came up to me and said, "You know what? You need a hit. You need to create a ballet with." Evelyn Cisneros, who's gorgeous, exotic, and all men without their shirts on. And I went, <laughs> I, went I will do it, proclamation. And it turned out to be a hit. So it was amazing. But I didn't have the music, and I was going crazy. I needed music. And, and a friend of mine who got married in Paris, she got this gift, uh, this recording of, uh, of uh, Bach and African melded together, and I fell in love with it. And it was it came at the right time, and two days before I was supposed to start rehearsal, I was like, this is it. I think Elgie didn't know what hit him. And then I, I had hired myself African dance consultants, so I had this whole family of African dancers in the, in the room, and my best recollection of that, the, of Elgie and Marlene looking in the window of, and just their jaws dropping because all this great movement everywhere and this family, is, you know, African dance family, is amazing, the energy. But yeah, the music... I usually have the music first, and this was kind of scary to have the idea but not the music, um, which is not fun. But it, it arrived in the nick of time on that case. That's always a very popular question is, <clears throat> are you inspired by hearing a piece of music, getting an idea, having a notion, right. having a problem to solve that's I, intriguing yeah, you? Yeah. I love... I love um, a challenge, and you know, it, it's easier to have that music to be inspired, uh, and then go from there. It's harder to have that idea or that, you know, the the storyline or something, and try to find that music. The, the easiest thing, not the easiest, the most expensive, is to have a commission score, but that takes a lot of time and money. Have you worked with commission scores? Well, I just did. Uh, I don't know if you know the a short story, uh, "The Lottery" by Shirley Jackson. I Tell just created that for Ballet West, and I've been wanting to do that for 10 years. And San Francisco Ballet was going to do it, Pacific Northwest Ballet, Atlanta Ballet. Everybody wanted to do it because the idea is so incredible, but I couldn't find the music. And so I'd back away and do something else. And finally, Ballet West said, we will invest in getting a commission score. So I uh, hired Robert Moran, and we worked together with Sandra Woodall on the, how we're going to do this. But in this case, I had... The story, I don't know if you're familiar with it, it's, a, it's, a, it's only 25 pages long, it's a, it's a classic, but the lottery at the end is in this basic Midwest town, it's unnamed, in the 50s, and they're talking about the lottery, and we do it every year, but the next town does it, but should we still do it as tradition? Yes, we have to, but it's, to make a long story short, is who picks that lottery gets stoned to death. And my idea was, what would it be like if all 14 dancers had to know the last solo that's really going to be extremely difficult, but didn't know until each dancer drew the lottery on stage. And that second that you draw it, you know you have to finish the ballet. It's like coming to the theater not knowing if you're going to have to do the Black Swan uh, variation. You know, you, it's until two seconds before. And it was amazing. Audiences would come night after night because they want to know who was going to pick the lottery, who was going to be stoned to death, and it was crazy. It was so successful. Uh, 
it just opened this year, and it's, uh, I, I was excited. And it was amazing to see that because you, you're never going to be complacent. The ballet will never be, well, we've done this, I've done this a million times. It's always going to be on edge. From the time the curtain goes up, because you don't know at the end, do I have to finish this ballet or not? And it was a crazy but concept. But how do you do that? How do you pick music for that? In this case, the only answer was a commission score. Mm-hmm. So it was successful with Ballet West, and now you're, you're going to, it's going to be done. It's, they're going to start touring it. I'm going to start getting a lot of companies that are interested. Um, it's... It was pretty brutal. It was amazing the, the, to work on this. Because imagine you have 14 dancers. Then you have the second cast. And then somewhat of a third cast. You've got like 28 plus people learning one of the most difficult solos they're ever going to do. And not knowing if they're ever going to do it. So right there. It was a very interesting rehearsal process. And I heard anecdotally that one dancer picked, in the run of performances they did in Salt Lake City, one dancer got picked two or maybe... Twice. And it yeah, was odd. It was times. like for the first performances, only women were being picked. I thought, this is very odd. The odds of that would be like crazy. But, yeah. Um, you're mentioning uh, layers of casting. This is one of the things that... I think of when I think of you and the choreographic works that you've done is how you have, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, been a career maker for a number of dancers. And it's fun. It's Mm -hmm. fun to see that. But I talk for a little while about how you look at your your Mm -hmm. field and how you begin to pick and then what happens when you've got a first cast and a second yeah, cast and I, a third cast. I love the underdog because I, I always, always won. I was never picked. I always like, I got the best roles by, because uh, the choreographers would come in and watch class. I was never a great classroom dancer. And I was always uh, intuitive of that, that, well, I'm not going to be picked. So I'm going to figure out I'm going to ask the uh, choreographer, can I just come in and learn? And I always picked the one I knew was always injured. And I always got to do the most incredible roles. And I remember this to the day. So if a dancer comes up to me and has the guts, and a lot of times they don't, to say, can I learn this role? I said, of course. You know, we can't schedule you because of many reasons. But, yeah, if you want to come in and learn it... Um, and in case of Ibsen's house, some of the third cast people were ones that originally asked to learn it. They learned it on their own. And I watched a run-through, and I went, brilliant. They really took the incentive. They really wanted to do this. I gave them two performances. I, and I, I, I love that. I love that concept. I don't always go. I kind of sift through the principals and companies and go, what about the person in back? I want that person. And I have a good track record with that. And I, 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 sometimes those are the most grateful dancers. They'll do anything, and they make it their own. They're, 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 it's amazing. So I love doing that because of my own experiences. But also, doing different uh, roles, I'm not always one that goes, you have to do it like the next person. You have to do it like the first cast. No, bring something of your own to that. I liked as a dancer when a choreographer didn't dictate, you have to do it this way. This is the way you have to do it. And I just felt so... Confined, mm-hmm. and I, you know, and I, I would do it, but I liked those choreographers that went, well, what would you do? What would you do instead? And, and, and it, you, the, those dancers make it their own, and I, I, I really appreciate that. And in this case, I have three casts of Ibsen's House, and all three casts are brilliant and different, which I love. 
When you go into a company, um, is it your policy to require that you do all the casting? Does the director sometimes well, yeah. make give well, you limitations? Well, you've got to look at the program. If there, if a dance is overly the use, if it's a third of a program, you can't use that same dance in all three ballets, of course. So you have to look at what's already cast, uh, overly used, because you also don't want to injure dancers. Uh, so you have to look at that, too. You've got to, like, ask with the castings of the others if there is casting yet. But I'm really mindful of that, definitely. Mm-hmm. And you've, you've touched on it, but um, the idea that in a second cast, your dancers might actually do... Well, I'm thinking of an earlier choreographer that I conversed with, and that's Wayne McGregor. Mm-hmm. He actually choreographs slightly different things for a second cast. Mm-hmm. Have you ever done anything like that? I don't do... I don't totally go out, out of my way to choreograph dif- differently for that dancer. But if that dancer has something else to bring to the table, I will listen and I'll watch and I'll look. You know, so that's, it, it's not on purpose. Because I, I, the choreography I do, it's, it's to a goal. I mean, I, I do want to regulate that. So it's not so much different each, for each person. Sometimes you have to. Sometimes the lift is too difficult or the size dif- is different with the, the male-to-female ratio, and so the lift has to change slightly, only for safety reasons sometimes. So uh, there's a lot of variables on something like that. Before we actually spend our final time talking about Ibsen's house, say a few words about the Tosca project. That was so fascinating. Yeah, was, again, going back to my roots of theater, where I work a lot with ACT and Carrie Perloff, um, and the Tosca project, which in, eventually became Tosca Cafe, because we toured it all through Canada, and it's about the 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 the, the bar Tosca Cafe in the uh, in the um, uh, North Beach area, and it's been around since 1917. It's been a haven for artists and politicians and and criminals and the, every it's got everything. So we really did this uh, this piece about this bar, and it's a uh, pseudo uh, no words are spoken so it's really a movement theatrical piece which was right up my alley and I co-created it with Carrie Perloff I'm going to try to bring it back but it was a very successful run and then we really altered it for the tour and we're going to bring it back at some point but again going back to my roots uh, Carrie Perloff uh, actually was very instrumental in me getting going back to Ibsen because I worked with her on a doll's house I choreographed the Tarantella for that and so it got me thinking, you know, when maybe five, six, seven years later of doing this, wow, you know, the inspiration of doing something about the women in the Victorian era, challenging the morals of Victorian women that he did all these, these uh, plays about. But I also in college uh, worked a lot with Hedda Gobbler. So it, it's all come full circle working with the, the, the plays and the stories of, uh, of Henrik Imsen. But it's I love bringing, like in the African dances, bringing in for the uh, Lombrina, the African classical piece. I bring in people. Carrie would come in and she would talk to them about character, about the play and stuff, and really motivate them. She even came in for this revival and really worked with the dancers. And the dancers are so appreciative to get input from other idioms, other, you know, establishments. So I love doing that, so to speak. Well, you provided your own segue into talking about right. Ibsen's house. Um, the, did the inspiration for it 
creep up on you? Um, and where did the mu- the music is so perfect? Mm-hmm. Well, the I mean, music is yeah, wonderful. It, that was again that fell into my lap. Uh, I don't know if you remember Joanna Berman, her husband uh, is a violinist, and he said because I, I told him described I wanted to do this ballet on about five women from five different Ibsen's plays, but uh, I can't find the music. And he said, here. And it's one of those things, again, it was handed to me. I went, perfect. It couldn't be more perfect. Um, but, yeah, uh, it, that's... But also, um, the, like I said, when I was uh, handed the uh, Lombarena with uh, Evelyn Cisneros and the Five Shirtless Men, this I knew before after when Helke said, can you do this piece for the 75th anniversary? And at the time, most of the ballets were, done, were being created for the virtuosity of the men. For some reason, up in that time, during that couple of years, it was all men, men, men. I went, you know what? I want to do something for five women. I want to exploit the, the, the uh, technical abilities of the women of San Francisco Ballet, but not only technically uh, uh, with the classical training, but also the desire they want to do characterizations and explore that, and they all want to do dramatic roles with a passion, and mm. they were there helping me create this. So it's really right away. I want to do something for five women of San Francisco Ballet. Mm. We do have some images. Um, let's look at them and see if you're inspired to comment. Um, uh, the music, which we alluded to, is a, a piano quintet by Dvorak, which is just luscious. Yeah, this is a doll's house, and this is Sophie and Sylvie in the solo, which, I mean, the movement alone, look at her. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, the, the dramatic qualities of the ballet are, first and foremost, I don't care if you fall out of a double pirouette or a turn, if the intensity, if it's honest, it's there more power to you. You know, technically, it's very difficult, but it's not what I'm... You have to do 32 fortes, or you have to do this. To me, the virtuosity is in the characterizations of these women. And this is Ghost. Uh, this is Dana Genshaft, and she plays... Um, this is Alvig. God, I did my notes here, but I don't want to bore you with that. But it's... Uh, she's the mother... And she mm-hmm. plays a very intense character in this. And I recall that when this was done for the 75th anniversary five years ago, right. um, it was right at the end of the season. Dana was made a soloist. Right, and, um, right. Well, she had to go on because it was... originally created for, oh, Lord, another dancer. And she hurt herself right before, mm-hmm. two days mm-hmm. before. And Dana came in and filled in and Helgi was so impressed with her and right after that he gave her a solo's contract which was amazing same yeah. thing with Garen Scribner he had to open it too David Karpetian was supposed to have done the opening and he heard his back in a different ballet so I had two two dancers that filled in admirably Garen you'll see Garen tonight perform it yeah. uh, and he was promoted quite soon after to a soloist which yeah. I was very proud of um and this is Hedda Gobbler, this is uh, Vitor Luiz, and, of course, Lorena Feo. She has, if one of the women could be said to have a central role, I would say this one. This she is, opens yeah, and closes the piece. Yeah, it's, it is very central. It's, it's the pivot, pivotal point of the, of the ballet, I think. 
Um, I think tonight you'll see Vanessa Zahorian do it for the very first time. Uh, Vanessa and um, Ruben Martin. So the premiere for them tonight. And this is from a rarely known um, play, Rosmersham. Uh, this is Anthony Spaulding and uh, Sasha DeSola. And this was her first... Uh, no, actually, she performed it with the company in Estonia, doing the same role. So this is, was her premiere on the Opera House stage doing this. But it was originally created on, on Anthony. When you were picking your casts for this, did you pick dancers who... Um, have already proven themselves in dramatic parts or who you no, suspected no. might? No, I always suspect, and like I said, I have a good track of record on that, especially some of the third cast people asked to be in it. They are brilliant. They are brilliant. And, uh, you know, I could, I could tell that they were going to work really hard at it. And they asked the right questions and wanted the right materials to look at. I also have a lot of the films, so, you know, I, I let them borrow, definitely, so they can really look at the characters. Let's see what else we have. Oh. And this is Sasha doing Rebecca West in Rosmersholm. Clearly, having seen each of these, I think, yeah, that's the last one. Mm-hmm. Um, each of these pictures shows one of the women, or with, in a couple, in a dramatic moment. They're, they're not right. just posing. Right. And even back to um, Sofiane in that arabesque is... It just, every line is screeching drama. Do you put, when you're creating this kind of thing, and you've done other dramatic works with um, Lady of the Camellias, for instance, Mm -hmm. is one that comes to mind. Um, Do you ask your dancers to, to act? Or do you like to put drama... Make oh, the drama inherent in the movement. I, I definitely do in the movement. And we work it together, and I really do love coaching uh, the acting part of the movement. And a gesture is for a reason. It's just not, you know, it comes from the core. It's not just to raise your arm. It's that your back goes and your arm goes. So there's a reason for where you look. I learned later in life, I don't know if it's Eric Brun who told me this, but you, you're not choreographing their eyes. You know, you, where are they looking? Who are they looking at? Why are they looking there? Where are they looking away? Is, it, is there a reason? But I also learned that through African dance, where the eyes are choreographed. The eyes are meaningful, and that really helped me when studying African dance for Lombarina. But, yeah, just to really have that. Uh, I love going there. No, it's, the movement is for a reason, for the most part. Sometimes you don't have to say it. What is that? What does that mean? Because uh, I like being a little more abstract. But it's for reasons, for purpose. It gets you from point A to point B, C, and D. So it really is. So you, again, where you are you going to look? What's the intent? What, what are you thinking here? I like to work in sentences. I don't go, this movement, this movement, this movement. Okay, you're starting talking, then you're going to the end. Now you finish that sentence. You're going to go to the next sentence. So it's, it really, and we work really uh, together on that in the room. Mm-hmm. I want to be sure that the audience has an opportunity to ask questions and get you going in a direction that I haven't thought of. Um, Have some of you thought of something you'd like to ask Val? We'll start right here. Can you explain some of the hand gestures? Uh, Can I explain some of the hand gestures in Ibsen's house? Each woman has a distinct hand gesture. Uh, 
because of what you don't, we don't have the luxury of, of speaking, of talking. So you have to have some way of communicating. And I, so I devised something for each, each, each woman that also got developed through the duets and such. Um, Hedda Gobbler is, is, she does this gesture to her mouth a lot, or this, this, this whole thing of just being, because she's very arrogant. And she just, uh, what she says is very uh, biting. It's very, she's bored. And, but she's very uh, middle class. She uh, married uh, somebody that she, she's making him buy a house. He can't afford a house, but he'd do anything for her. But she's bored, and she's very arrogant. So her gestures mean that. The, uh, the Mrs. Alvig with ghosts is her ghost is that she, she's seeing her son now through her husband who had many affairs and developed syphilis and died. And now her son is going through the same thing. So this whole thing, grasping at your, your chest and, and pounding. And um, uh, Doll's House, she has to be fastidious. And she's uh, fixing her hair, fixing her dress. So they all had something that I can use. Yeah, and that's, again, that is a head of gobblers. It's just conniving, trying to, you know, work something out. Well, you know, uh, Agnes DeMille did a lot of gestures that way. That's where I learned that, believe it or not. So gestures are very important for characterizations. If you can't say it, you've got to have something convey what you're feeling, and, and you have to stick to it so you, the audience really can understand and so forth. And there is one mo- moment toward the end of the ballet when each woman is there and does her own gesture. Yes, yeah. And, and the, it's, the, I wanted the, to the just music, freeze. That's my favorite music there, too. Yeah, yeah, I just wanted to freeze and go back and look mm-hmm. at each one. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, yeah. another question. Yes. Yeah, the the designer Sandra Woodall really did a lot of research um, on on the, the the period Ibsen and such Victorian era, and and you're going to notice that the men's jackets and stuff they look like they weigh a ton. They're light as a feather. The dancers love working in these these costumes. You'll you notice the, the flow of them. Um, but yeah, she was asking about the significance of the colors. Of the colors, uh, well the the. Sandra did have her her tone, which she she's great to collaborate with. I don't know exactly each. I know this is very uh, more red for Hedda. I mean, a little bit more uh, uh, extroverted out there. You have more of that green for Lady of the Sea, uh, and you even see the scalloping of of the dress. I don't I don't think there's a picture of her. Um, uh, the Rosmersholm, it's a little bit more, uh, even though she was a free spirit, she's still married to, or was in love with, uh, oh gosh, um, was a, he was a minister, but she was trying to get him back into the free thinking way of life at the time that was very popular. Um, oh, there it is. Um, but yeah, they all have different colors. Um, I don't remember the exact reasoning that Sandra picked these. She's designed a lot of Ibsen's plays. And so she had a lot more background on that. No, I, I, I 
doing the Ibsen's plays, boy, do I get a lot of trouble because there's a lot of scholars with Ibsen. It's like, how dare you do that? Especially you're doing five different plays and the five different women. From different... I didn't want to tell a story. I didn't want the feeling of the, the characterizations of it and what, they, what the women went through. It was here his Victorian era where he's challenged the morals of, of the Victorian culture at the time. And these women really, in their own way, were challenging that. Uh, but yeah, boy, do I get in trouble. <laughs> but it's fine. I, I'm at an age now where I do what I want to do, but it's like, and I'm sticking by it. Um, yes. How did you know that Dvorak's music suited your yeah, movement? I, yeah, you know, it's intuitive. I mean, I think he wrote it around the right time period, even though it's not, you know, it's, it, the, the idea would be using Grieg. Uh, the question was, well, what was my motivation? Why would I use Dvorak as opposed to Grieg or somebody that was more obvious? Um, you know, it's, it's intuitive, and, and I really thought the period worked and the tone of the music, it just seemed to work with how, what I was going to do, but it also drove, you know, kind of dictated at some point, I had to go in a certain way as well. But yeah, Greek would have been a great thought idea. I, would, I want to do, uh, um, oh, I'm getting old here, <laughs> train of thought, uh, an Ibsen's play, uh, uh, here again, thank you, thank you. There, I didn't know. I that. do. I'm looking that. into that as a full length at some point. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Fun. Mm. Um, I, you did say the structure or or the the music actually did dictate to a certain point the structure of the piece, three movements. Right. Well, it, it's um, would, four. It's four actually, and I use one movement as the overture. It was for a little more upbeat and to just start off. I never do overture, but it was perfect to get you in the mood and stuff, and then I use the three movements. And there's a lot of repeats in the music I was going to take away, but I loved working with all these dancers so much I kept the repeats in, um, so it really worked. So, yeah, the music does dictate in some way. We have time for maybe another couple. Yes. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. The question was, uh, when, I was chore- when I choreograph a piece, do I just do that piece, or am I doing others in my mind? I, right now, I am working on six ballets at once and kind of regulating and probably seven revivals all over the world, so I'm trying to regulate who's going where and stuff. So, yeah, but it's exciting. Right now, I'm trying to search for five, music for five different projects. So whenever I'm searching for music, my, my poor condo is like a wreck because the music's everywhere and piles and files, and right now it's crazy. But, yeah, yeah, it, it's nuts. It's nuts. But, yeah, I'm working. I'm one of the lucky ones that's continually working, and you can't plan for that. And, you know, it's funny. Sometimes on Facebook I get offers, really good offers. I mean, I've just discovered Facebook. The, this is what I'm doing, you know, go out there. And then you got a director. They went, oh, I, re- you, I remember this ballet. Can you bring this ballet? And well, when? You know, it's like, it's crazy. But, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Maybe one more. Um, in the back, yeah. Um, I think a lot of 
Right. Yeah, is my work copyrighted or what is the mechanism of working for royalties? Well, you do sign a contract. Uh, and your creative work, your choreography is yours. You own that. Of course, the designer has the copyright of the designs. So there's a contract for that. Sometimes the literary rights are so difficult, you have to do that with the attorneys and this and, and negotiate that. Everyone's got a piece of that pie, but it collectively has to work that I've, I could copyright my choreography or my ideas, but it, it won't work if you can't use the rest of it. If, like Shirley Jackson's Estate the Lottery, if they said, you can't do it anymore after this contract's over, there's nothing I can do about that. But yeah, it's very complex, complicated, and also getting the rights to the music. Um, I was going to do Bartok, and all of a sudden Bartok Estate said, you cannot use Bartok now for anything other than what it was intended to be written for, which you, you wonder who makes these decisions in his estate. And you probably, Bartok is in his grave, turning in his grave, because he wants his work to be done. He died a pauper. He didn't reap the benefits of this. So, and a lot of the works that were done by Bartok can no longer be done, which is a, really a shame. So you never know. Sometimes the music can be just pulled right from under you. Um, the I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> The Richard Wagner, um, Four Last Songs, it seems to me his estate pulled... Or the Strauss. Strauss? Oh, that's what I meant. Yeah, Richard, Richard Strauss. Strauss, too. If it's not written for opera or ballet, you cannot choreograph it to it. So there's a lot of ballets prior to that. But it was an estate sometimes. So, but yeah, I copyright to my... The, the, the steps, so to speak, and the idea, possibly, Yes. I'm sorry that we have run out of time. I'm going to have to call it. I want to, before we run away, remind you that eventually this will be available as a podcast on the website, sfballet.org. Next week, I look forward to seeing you all downstairs in the Herbst Theater. I hope that you will be going to this evening's performance and loving it and knowing that you will love it. And with that... I will thank Val so much. It's always a delight. My old, old, old.